And we have to say no. And we have to stop being afraid of if we say no, somebody else might get the job. We'll let them get the job. Hey, it's Zach here. And super quick before we dive into the show, if you haven't already, I want to make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly case of the Mondays newsletter, because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm gonna send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. My guest today is Lisa Robeson, who's a Steadicam and camera operator turned award-winning editor, best known for her work on Loudermilk, My Life Without Me, The L Word, and Firefly Lane. And most recently, she added the Tribeca feature American Dreamer. Even more impressive than her credits, however, is Lisa's story of growth and perseverance in the face of massive adversity. Now, while we each have our own unique paths to success, you would be hard-pressed to find a story that is more unique or more inspiring than Lisa's. While it's certainly rare to make the transition from the camera department into post-production, what is even more amazing is that this transition was because of a near-death experience that Lisa shares candidly in today's conversation. Not only has Lisa persevered through extremely difficult times, she has come out of each experience with a greater understanding of who she really is. Now, what inspired me from this conversation, above all else, was Lisa recognizing the true cost of being a people pleaser and overcommitting to too many projects her entire career and how she can set better boundaries in her career going forwards. If you find yourself making the same mistakes over and over, particularly when it comes to burnout and overcommitting to too many projects at once, or if you feel as if you've just been paying your dues far longer than you anticipated, this conversation is probably for you. You're not only going to learn how to better determine your non-negotiables in order to set yourself up for more sustainable success as well as less burnout, but you're also going to learn that success is never lost at the placement of your boundaries. In fact, setting boundaries is in fact where your success will most likely begin. 
All right, without further ado, my conversation with award-winning editor Lisa Robeson. To access the show notes for this episode with all the bonus links and resources discussed today, as well as to subscribe, leave a review, and more, simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash episode 195. I am here today with Lisa Robison, who is an editor best known for her work on Louder Milk, My Life Without Me, The L Word, and Firefly Lane. And you also recently worked on the Tribeca feature from this year, American Dreamer, starring Peter Dinklage. Lisa, for many reasons that the audience is going to find out a whole lot more about, I am excited about talking to you today, and it is a pleasure to have you here on the podcast. Oh, thank you, Zach. It's, uh, it's an extreme pleasure for me to be here. I love your podcast. That means a lot to me. Uh, every time that I hear from somebody that says, oh, yeah, I follow you or listen, I live in such a vacuum that it doesn't occur to me to this day that the work I'm doing in my tiny little room working from home actually reaches real people. I just get so wrapped up in the details and the files and the dates and this needs to go. And I'm like, oh, yeah, this is actually going out in front of people. So I still am like, oh, wait, you listen? So it just um, <laughs> it, it warms my heart to know that uh, that is reaching you and, and other people like you. So I appreciate you saying that. Oh, thank um, you. So anybody that listens to the show knows that I don't talk to editors about editing. I talk to editors about life and the mindsets that are required to be successful, overcoming obstacles, everything except for the craft of editing. That having been said, somebody reached out and said, hey, you should really have Lisa on your podcast. And my reaction was, I mean, she, she seems like a pro. She's got some good experience. But I wasn't jumping over the moon thinking, oh, I can talk to another editor about editing because that's not really my thing. I usually pass them off to other shows like Art of the Cut or The Rough Cut or whatever it might be. So I had said back, you know, just give me a little bit of sense of her story just so I can see if it's a good fit for the show. And within about a sentence and a half of that response, I'm like, done. Get Lisa on, book her. She and I need to talk. So framing it that way, Let's start with a little bit of your origin story, because you took a very, very uncommon path to be in the editor's chair today. So let's talk about where the whole origin story begins for Lisa Robinson. First of all, I started off in the camera department, but how I got into the camera department was helping my brother in 1986 shoot a documentary, running around with the cameras, and that was so great. And then I went back up to Whistler, BC, and I was a ski bum. And then he said, what are you going to do with your life? And you know, that day we ran around with the cameras. It was so awesome. And he was like, what? No, it's all guys in the camera department. You don't want to do that. And, and I was like, I just loved it. I loved the physicality of it. I loved the, you know, getting those shots. And, and so I was a camera assistant for about five or six years. And I worked mostly with the same team and we were a really tight team. My, my focus puller, uh, he was like a brother and the operator was like an uncle and that was all I wanted to do. And I wanted, I had hopes of becoming uh, one of the first female camera operators in Vancouver because uh, at that time, this is the 90s, there weren't that many and uh, there actually weren't that many female camera assistants either. And I'm 5'2 and I'm, you know, lifting that thousand foot mag is always arms bent and, and um I was like, I don't need to go to the gym. I love the physicality of this. And, and this is just the best job. And then um, I have asthma. So, and I had always known that working out was the best thing for my asthma. And even though sometimes it's uh, exercise induced and sometimes it's allergy induced, but I knew I stayed fit. And I was on a feature film called 
Little Women, but this is back in the day with Winona Ryder and Susan Saranda, not the remake. And we were shooting in Victoria Island and the plant Broom came into bloom. And on that same weekend, they sprayed the acreage that we're on with this white foam that airplanes land in when um, when airplanes crash. They try to put the foam when they think the airplane's going to crash. They put the foam down. And so I'm walking out and I'm just pushing my cart. It's the beginning of the day. Nothing strenuous. And suddenly uh, I feel the tightness in my chest and I give the motion to these fellows that I've worked with for six years that I have to go do a puff and I have to go to the camera truck. And fortunately in the camera truck was the camera truck driver who saw me do the hit of Ventolin and I, I passed out my, you know, my lips went blue, the whole deal. They try to get uh, craft service and um, craft services is giving me oxygen. It wasn't working. Ambulances are being called and they are taking me to a small town in Vancouver Island. And I, I basically died. I saw the white light. I talked to my dead stat dad who said, <clears throat> sorry. Oh, I, I get it. 30 years later. Take your time. So, and he said, it's not your time. It's not your time. And, uh, and I got, uh, I woke up and I was in the hospital for a couple hours, but I had, they didn't know where I was. Production didn't know why, where I was. So I literally went out. I got dressed. I went out to this little tiny reception finding out where I was. And it's, you know, the old days when you could remember a telephone number. And I called the production office and they were like, oh, that's where you are. And then they sent a teamster for me and got me off the island as soon as they could. And I was able to finish the film. But after that, I kept getting lung infections. And my doctor said, either you stop doing your job or you find a new uh, doctor. So I didn't know what to do. And I had to stop working. So I spent about six months at home, honestly, drinking beer and watching Absolutely Fabulous. And just my life was plummeting. I just, I didn't care about anything. And then my brother who was editing out of the pilot for Outer Limits, he said, why don't you come by and watch me just hang out in the edit suite? And I came by and I sat behind him going, oh yeah, hmm, that's kind of cool. I could do that. Right? You know, and I was bored because it's the editing room. And if you're not allowed to edit, it, there's nothing else to do. So I picked up the manual and I started reading the manual. And because I'm a little, a little bit geek, I was walking down the hall and the two assistants that were working on the show were like, I don't get PC. This like doc the 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 format the, the, the. and I said guys it's you know it's it's uh, DOS slash backslash format and they were like what get in here so then they kept me on and production wouldn't hire me because they don't so I realized this was something to keep my head focused and and keep me from sitting at home drinking beer and watching Absolutely Fabulous. So I started offering to pick up the dailies and I I washed cars, walked people's dogs when they would bring their dogs to work. 
all that stuff, get lunches, go back and get the right meal and, and hang around for the fish flight. I just didn't give up. And the other fear was that at this time I was 31. So it was like, what are you going to do? I, I didn't feel I wanted to go back, well, go back to university or take any courses. I really loved my original job. So I just dug in and, and focused on this job. And I had so many great people that supported me along the way. Just when, because when you hit a wall, you think I can't do it. And then you have somebody that says you can, and you feed off that. Well, essentially, that's why I've made the uh, the major career transition that I have, because I love being that person. I realize it's just a, a gift that I have, that I'm very good at seeing potential in others, and people aren't very good at seeing the potential in themselves. It just seems to be a, a rampant epidemic that we have where people just don't believe that they're capable of the things that they want to achieve and they need somebody else, not to tell them that they are, but somebody else to help them believe themselves that they can. And I'm very glad that you had people like that in your life because I think it's very important that we surround ourselves with the right people that are going to support our goals and not try and really push them down. And I would imagine that going back a little bit earlier, even before we get to the the inciting incident of our story where you know, you have your near-death experience and you make the transition to post, I would guess that there were a lot of naysayers that were saying, uh, Lisa, you're 5'2 and you're a woman. Camera operator, huh? Yeah. Good luck with that. Let me know how that works out. So if we rewind all the way back there, where did you get the mindset from to not listen to that and instead continue to pursue your goal of being one of the first female camera operators? I... When I was a teenager, I had a stepdad and I have four older brothers and they all drove stick and, you know, the, the cool old Buicks and things like that. And I was like coming up to that age of trying to learn how to drive. And I was like, I can't, I can't, they all drive stick. And he was like, if your dumb brothers can drive a stick, you can do it too. And I, his voice comes into my head a lot of, there's no reason why you can't do something if you want to do it. And yeah, little angels. Yeah. Isn't it amazing how just one little moment, right? One moment in time, I would guess that most likely stepdad maybe remembers it, but usually the moments that we remember that define us, we share them with people years later and like, I said that I don't remember saying that at all. And you're like, are you kidding? My entire life's work is based on this one sentence. Well, it sounds like good advice. I never said it. I don't remember it. Right. Um, yeah. But I, I really believe that our life is nothing more than a collection of moments and your ability to see that moment, get the value out of it and get so much mileage, no pun intended, maybe a little, um, but yeah. no pun intended, getting the mileage out of that and applying it to so many different obstacles and all the adversity. Like I just, I feel like so many people don't value enough the voices that we have in our heads. And oftentimes the voices are the ones that are telling us we can't, we shouldn't be doing these things. And what I help people do is replace those voices with people that are saying that you can't do them. But you were fortunate enough to have somebody early enough in your life that was like, no, just do it, don't worry about it. Um, so once you had that mindset in place, the seed was planted that I can do it, 
What was the experience like once you actually got into that world? You're working with the Teamsters. You're working with other people that are really old school. They've got this vision in their mind of what a camera assistant's supposed to look like, what a camera operator is supposed to look like. What continues to drive you knowing that most of the people are looking at this saying, like, this is ever going to happen? Uh, I, you know, that's, that's such a great question. I think it was just the just doing, putting my head down and doing my job and just them going, ah, really, she's going to take that tripod up the mountain. And then it was just like, watch me. And I did it. And it was like, oh, and just slowly, not winning them over, but just slowly watching them go, oh, and then earning that respect. And I actually liked that I had to earn the respect. It wasn't like, oh, she's a girl, we'll help her carry the battery. It was like, oh my God, she did it. She's she's tough. And she's and and you know, the great thing about working on set is it's such a team. And if if you're willing to help out somebody else, they'll help you out. And um, like there's a Maybe it's a bit different now, but back in the day, it was you, you know, you, you helped the grips clear out the stands at the end of the night and they helped you. So I think it was just the building of that team and them maybe testing me, which is fine. And me sort of living up to the test. So when you were first, I mean, like even way back in the day where you're running around with cameras uh, with your brother, which, by the way, if you don't know, your origin story is almost identical to mine. Same age. Same, you probably had the same Zach Morris uh, camera on your shoulder, right? The VHS tapes and the VHSC <laughs> tapes. People are like, what's VHSC? Never heard of it. Uh, look it up. It's on Google. Um, so you and I have such a similar origin story. I would imagine, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you got to a certain point where it's not just a matter of my professional goal is that I want to be a female camera operator. It becomes your identity did you get to a point where you became so wrapped up in the work that you did that you almost lost separation with yourself and who i am is the person on the path to be the first female camera operator oh exactly yeah totally that was it and then when i couldn't be that it was just like what am i going to do i've invested all this time all this energy people are going to mock me it just complete failure yeah let me ask you this. I think another question that people ask that's even scarier, rather than just what am I going to do, the question is, who am I? Did mm. you ever ask that question after you'd realized, and the reason that you left that part of the industry, so valid, makes so much sense, and you made the right decision, but I would imagine at the time, it's not just, well, now what do I do to pay the bills? It's, this is who I've been in my mind for decades. Who am I now? Did you find that you were confronting that thought as well? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't even know what to say after that except yes. <laughs> it would it was such it was uh such a loss for me, a loss of my identity, a loss of as you say my job and my income, but it was also uh just like a, a void in my soul. The reason that I bring it up is because I think even though the the details may be different for everybody, we've all had our 6 months of watching absolutely fabulous and drinking beer. We've all had that version of our life, right? Um, so I think that what so many people get wrapped up in is this idea that I have failed or whatever it is, and they don't understand why can't I just get up off the couch or why can't I get out of, I just got to check the job listings. I just got to send my outreach emails. Everybody says you got to put yourself out there, network, network, network. Why is it so hard? 
And from what I found digging into so many people's challenges that it's usually some attack to their identity. It's like, how can I reach out to them and tell them my story if I don't even know who I am anymore? Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And it ha- it's in the, I don't know if it's just this industry. I think a lot of people feel that way when they're really encompassed into their career. They just, uh, once if they lose that career, it is their identity. For sure. Yeah, it's very insightful. Given all of that, now let's go back to where we kind of put a pin in the conversation before, which is that you're working your way into the post-production industry. So talk to me about the gap between I walk in the office, I tell them about DOS and the backslashes, and I'm making all of it up because I know nothing about DOS and PC. I am that Mac person. It's like, I don't get any of it. Um, But you go from that moment, you prove yourself, you provide some value to where you are now, I'm editing Tribeca quality feature films and all these other great iconic projects that you've worked on. What's the trajectory from that moment to where you are now in a nutshell? I assisted uh, again. My brother went to the union and uh, my brother at that time was such a huge mentor. He is still a mentor for me. He was like, you know, we'll get you in, you'll do your time. And then I was so nervous that I had to live up to that you know it's uh not wanting to let anybody down so i assisted and then i i liked assisting it was comfortable i knew i knew how to do the line script i knew how to do all that the bins i liked learning from lightworks totally dating myself if absolutely fabulous didn't date me already to you know the avid and you know and then somebody said to me you should edit and I was like, no, no, I don't want to edit. And it was on uh, Highlander the Raven. The post supervisor said, Lisa can edit one episode. And they literally set me up in the closet beside the furnace. Like I had a cup with headphones on because that was the only way I could hear anything. And I was like, they're, they're not going to do it. And I worked my butt off. And um, one turned into three episodes, three turned into eight. And then I just, somebody said, once you edit, if you want to edit, don't assist. So I just, I hung out and just applied for editing jobs. And one editing job led to another. And I've just been really fortunate with the people that, again, believed in me to put that little oomph under me. And then once I was given the opportunity, I was like, I'm not letting anybody down. And I'm gonna I'm gonna cut this episode the best I can, like I would carry the tripod to the top of the mountain. And um yeah. For somebody who didn't go to editing school, I lucked out. <laughs> I was going to say, so what, what do you think it was that they noticed? Because there are, I can tell you, there are a countless number of people that have been clawing and scraping as assistant editors for years or even decades that just cannot get into the editor's chair. And I'm sure to hear your story, they're like, come on. Like, you didn't even want to do it. And somebody's like, no, do it. It'll be fun. And all of a sudden, you've got your four credits and you're on your way. But I firmly believe it wasn't just luck. There was something that they recognized. What was it that you did that put yourself in that position? Because I don't um, believe it was all luck. 
Yes, I know you hate that word or you don't like that word. I shouldn't I don't it. like that word in most contexts because people use it as an excuse. I do believe right. that luck exists. People think that I say that luck does not exist. I don't agree with that. But I believe that there are a lot more things we can control that we believe we can't and we use luck as an excuse. So were there components of luck that were outside of your control in the circumstance? Maybe. But I don't think luck plays the percentage that maybe you or others might think. There's something that puts you in that editor's chair and I want to better understand what it is so that others can see similar traits in themselves. So on the Highlander, the Raven, because it was a spinoff from the first one, I didn't start working on Highlander from the first get-go, but I watched all the episodes at lunch. So I knew that show. I knew that show. And that show was famous for doing bottle shows or clip shows, you know, where it's like, oh, remember when? And and I I would I could go oh, that's from episode blah. And that's from episode... And they were like, how do you know that? And I was like, because I I absorbed... I watched it. I watched it and they were like, what? And then I I would, you know, is the days when we digitized everything and we would sit and watch the dailies go in real time. And when my editor had a problem or like, you know, do you remember that shot? We need that shot. And I'd be like, that was from that episode or that was from uh day four of blah and they'd be like what you remember that and I'd be like yeah I totally remember that and I think I think because I showed a keen interest and I was always there for even though I was assigned to one editor I would I would help out the other editor or I'd help out the other assistant so I was very much that team effort from being on set came with me uh, it wasn't just, oh, this is my editor and I'm only going to help them. That wasn't how that wasn't how I operated back then. So I just as an assistant, it was like everybody gets everything. And But I think it was because I remembered the shows and I was keenly interested in it. My sincerest apologies for the interruption, but if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from ErgoDriven co-founder and CEO Kit Perkins, creator of the topo mat. The topo mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're gonna invest in anything at that Ferrari level, it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself, that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a tilt 
Diplomat. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height-adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the Topo Mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the Topo Mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me slash topo. That's T-O-P-O. It's once again, it's becoming eerie how similar our journeys and our stories are, because what you're describing is exactly the way that I made myself indispensable for my first TV gig on Burn Notice. I was oh, brought into huh. Burn Notice to edit one episode while somebody was editing another pilot. And that got delayed, and then they needed somebody for a second episode. But essentially, I had seen – at the the time, I was hired for the beginning of season four. And just for the job interview, even before I even had the job, I watched the entire series twice. Three seasons, 16 episodes a season, 42 minutes an episode. That was a lot of watching TV. A lot of – Right. But they essentially called me the rain man of burn notice because they would say I need that one shot of him snapping his fingers and there's an explosion behind. That was at the end of act three and episode 311. They're like, what? I'm like, just go look. You're right. It was at the end of act three and episode 311. And because of that, I was able to provide a lot of value to the other teams because they were looking for shots. Burn notice was so much repurposing of B-roll of bombs and all this other stuff that we constantly needed to access the archives. And I was just always the person whose door they knocked on and I made myself indispensable. And it sounds like that's one of the traits that you possessed that made you valuable as an editor. So it wasn't just luck. You had decided, I'm going to know everything about this show, where technically that's not really in your your job description. I think most people, especially nowadays, and maybe it's just me becoming old and curmudgeon and like, well, back in my day, we did it this way. I don't know. But I feel that everybody's like, hey, this is my job. I've done my duties. Now I want to go home. And there's a fine line that we'll talk about later between just doing your job, doing your job exceedingly well, and then doing your job so exceedingly well it's to your own detriment. But at least for now, you are going beyond the requirements of your job so you could provide value in other places. That's not luck. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, then, then perhaps we will agree. We will agree to disagree. <laughs> no, I, I. It was a. But it's funny, I didn't realize I was doing it at the time. Like, I didn't sit down and go, I'm going to watch this so they, I know. I just was like, I should know what the show's about, you know. Which speaks a lot to your character traits. Character traits that I think are both incredibly valuable for what you do. But if we're talking about what it also means for the quality of your life, for your health, mental and physical, being both a perfectionist and a workaholic are great until they are not. Yes, until right? the house of cards. Yeah. And anybody that doesn't listen to this regularly, you should know this is a matter of it takes one to know one. Because I am both <laughs> a raging recovering workaholic and a recovering perfectionist. So it comes from experience to be able to talk about it. But this is something that I know is very near and dear to your heart, that this has been a struggle of yours your entire career, has it not? Oh, for sure. I'm getting uh, choked up as we talk, as you talk about it. And I'm just... Um, Try not to get choked up. What is it that's choking you up about this specific subject? Oh, I think, um, oh, geez, Zach. Um, it's not wanting to let people down. Mm. So I, yeah. What is it about letting people down that scares you so much and makes you so emotional? Uh, 
I guess not wanting to disappoint anybody. So I'm super hard on myself. And uh, yeah. Well, let me assure you, this is a very common challenge. Frankly, if this weren't a common challenge, I probably wouldn't have the podcast and the coaching business that I do now because at least half, if not more, of the clients that come to me that say, I'm burned out, I can't do the job anymore, whatever it might be, they've lost their creative passion. It's usually because people pleasing has just crossed this line of there's just, it doesn't matter how far I push it, I just, I have nothing left inside of me. So it's a very, very common challenge for people. Yeah. So I just, well, I, I want to, to, to make sure you know that, and I say this both to you, but anybody else that's listening, it is not just you. And that was something that I needed to hear when I first started, not because I'm a people pleaser, but because I gave everything and then some, and I couldn't hack it, not hack it professionally, but personally, I just, I couldn't keep up with it. I wasn't sleeping. I was dealing with horrible depression. And I kept thinking, why does everybody else have this figured out but me? Everybody else seems to be able to work these hours and they've got these great careers and they're winning awards and they've got smiles on their faces until I realized, oh, it's all bullshit. None of you can do it either. I feel so much better now, <laughs> right? But it's taken years to discover that. So what you were going through was very, very common. I literally have this conversation with people every single day. So if you don't mind, and we don't have to, I'm gonna leave this up to you. But I think that for others that feel as emotional about this as you might, I would like to dig into it a little bit further because I think it could be of value. Sure, sure. <laughs> and again, you tell me when it's like, you know, let, let time to change the subject. Okay. But I'm curious, very similar to this mindset of, I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm not going to let somebody tell me no because I was learning stick. And he's like, no, you're going to learn this because if your dumb brothers can, you can, right? That's stuck in your head. It's like, no, I can do something if I set my mind to it. I'm curious, is there a similar experience that has gotten it into your head, the importance of pleasing others, even at the, the cost of your own health and well-being? I'm sure there is. I'm sure it's just uh, trying to keep up. And can you ask the question again? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll ask it in a slightly different way. Um, there, and I'm going to give a little bit more background this time. So as somebody who has said that you listen to the podcast, you may already be familiar with this conversation. But I had a conversation with Gretchen Rubin, and we talked about a topic and an idea that she created called the four tendencies. And we'll, we'll make sure to, to link in the show notes to that episode. But essentially, there are four ways in which we respond to expectations. It's not personality traits. It's not everybody belongs in buckets and everybody's the same because I don't believe in that stuff. But there's some truth to this idea of the four tendencies. And essentially, when it comes to expectations, there are four basic types of responses. There's the upholder. And the upholder is somebody that when somebody asks them to do it, they do it because somebody told me to, so why wouldn't I, right? Very rigid. This is how things right. work. We stick to our schedules. We show up on time. That's an external expectation. Internally, I'm going to exercise. I'm going to eat well. I'm going to get eight hours of sleep a night, and I'm going to do it consistently. Done because I told myself to do it. Never will I understand those people to this day. That's definitely <laughs> not me because if I say, no, I need to exercise and eat well, none of it gets done. The only reason I maintain the habits and the regimens I do is because of external accountability. Upholders don't need it. Then you've got questioners. Questioners' response to everything is, yeah, but why? Help me understand. 
right? That's the way that I'm wired. It's why I have a podcast where I talk to hundreds and hundreds of people to better understand their life, how they're wired, how they do the things that they do, right? I don't know how to not ask why. It's actually very exhausting. That's me responding to expectations. Yes, but why are you asking me to do that? And what is the benefit? And is there a better way? That's the, the question in my head 24 hours a day. Hmm, I wonder if there's a better way to do this thing, right? So right. then another tendency would be the rebel. And the rebel, immediately upon either an external or an internal expectation, the response is, you're not going to tell me what to do. I'm going to do it my own way. And Ooh. then the fourth tendency is the obliger. And the obliger is one that when external expectations are put upon them, the immediate answer is always, yes, of course, whatever you need. The internal expectation to whatever I need myself is usually, I'll get to that when I meet everybody else's needs. I have a pretty good feeling I know which one of those you resonate with the most. Yeah, I think so, too. Uh, yeah, it seems, seems pretty <laughs> obvious, right? Door, door number four. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so the reason I reframe it this way for you is to re-ask the question. I have found through talking to many, many people that there's a, a nature versus nurture. There is the nature of I'm wired this way versus I'm wired one way, but I've been conditioned through environment and behavior slightly differently. Mm -hmm. So knowing all of that, does that help jog any memories or ideas about potentially where the seed was planted that I must appease the needs of others even to my own detriment? Yeah, yeah. I think it's, um, I'm, I think it has to, it must be because I can't even say it, but being the youngest in the family, and my dad died when I was eight, and I think that, I think they just wanted to be the person that made everything easier for everybody else. Supposed to be the rebel. Right. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you very much for having the courage to share that because I know that it wasn't easy. The reason that I like to have these kinds of conversations and not talk about, well, explain to me the, the music choices in American Dreamer and what inspired you, right? Those are great. Not the kind of conversations that I find is valuable. This to me is a conversation that I think is both valuable and can change lives. And the fact you were willing to share that I think is immensely valuable. But the reason that I want to have this conversation is that I have found with myself included and so many others, once they realize that this perspective comes from somewhere, they can better understand it. It doesn't mean you have to change. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the way that you do it. But when I had my own realization similar to this, I was like, Oh, now I get why I do this thing all the time. And that's why what helps I can't, me. Why I can't say no. Right? Because at a very young age, you experienced one of the most extreme traumas, if the most extreme trauma that an eight-year-old girl could experience, losing your father. And you took the role of, I'm going to make sure that everybody is okay. That's a lot of weight for an eight-year-old girl. Yeah. But now think about, does it make some sense that you are also the little 5'2 girl that shows up on set and it's like, I'm going to carry all the heavyweights. Watch me. Yeah. Yeah. And then the giant wall comes crashing down. Nope. Can't achieve your dreams. Not going to happen for a very good reason. And what do you do? You take a few months to regroup and then you just start proverbially picking up all the weights and carrying them again. Yeah. 
So what, what I'm curious, now that we better understand where a lot of this behavior comes from, and just to be very clear, both to you, but to everybody else, I'm not judging this behavior as good or bad. I just love to understand it. I'm the questioner. Why do things work the way that they do? It used to be, how does the story work on the screen? All right, now I've learned as an editor how to put the pieces together. I'm still editing. Now I just do where the dailies are people's stories in their own lives. Same process, yeah. still editing, right? Still understanding the story arcs. So what I'm curious about is where have you found it most valuable to have these character traits where you feel that I'm the one that's going to make sure that everything is working great and we all get through it versus this is costing me. Oh, well, the job I do and my my life, I feel uh, I have immense pride that I'm the go-to person. And just uh, recently in this last year, being that go-to person, you did I did strike burnout, and I did you know I I was doing two very important jobs at the same time, and uh, I ended up snapping at you know producers, embarrassing myself, and that's where it falls apart, just being totally drained and not in check, and that's where I. You know, fortunately, everybody was forgiving because <laughs> when you're when you're in the position of as the head of department and you're losing your mind, it's not cool. Basically, it's not who I wanted to be. Yeah. And I would I would guess that anybody that saw this happen with you, the immediate reaction was, uh, this is not Lisa. <laughs> They're yeah. like, who is this person? So it's it's not so much like, how dare they? It's like, what is going on? It's almost like shock rather than anger. It's just like, something's got to be wrong. Because I would guess that's very out of character for you. It was. And and they, you know, and it was a Zoom call. And it was one of those. And the, the response was, if you're not in the mood to do this, let's not do it. And it was just such a great response to me. Um, and uh, I, I really respect that person even more for not challenging me, not getting mad back at me, just taking a breath of, and I could, you know, it's the saying of how do I want to be represented in this moment is what they did. It was, I, they just took a breath and responded back to me and, and, uh, and it just deflated the situation. It was a huge lesson for me of a, my, my watermark, my point of being exhausted, and also how to respond. So I gained a lot from that, from being overworked. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you're willing to share that because again, I think it's so easy for those that are still trying to either break into the industry or climb the ladder to see people that are doing well and succeeding thinking, well, they've got it all figured out. They're not, they're not having the outburst like I'm having or dealing with the burnout that I'm dealing with, so I must be doing something wrong. And this isn't the kind of thing that you talk about on Tribeca panels, right? No, but it's, no. I think it's important to get that stuff out there to know that even the seasoned pros that are very successful are dealing with all the same challenges. Yeah, it seems I find uh, even with 20-some-odd years of editing, uh, the demands are... The demands are greater and my demands are greater is that I, you know, I, I want to keep growing. I want to keep experiencing different challenges. And, and then when you have two conflicts, 
you you don't want to let anybody down because it's not fair. It's not fair that schedules got crazy or overlapped or whatever. Well, I want to dig into that a little bit further. So again, this isn't about judgment saying it was right or wrong. I just want to better understand what led to that outburst? Because I think it's very, very common for people to be at that point where they're just like, I'm done. The filter is off. I just cannot do it anymore. We've all hit that moment more than once. So the angle that I want to take, knowing that we've talked a little bit about your tendencies to be somewhat of a perfectionist and a workaholic and a people pleaser versus what you said, which is that the schedules are tighter and the budgets are smaller and things are getting harder. Which of those two do you think contributed more to you reaching that point? Was it more your own tendencies or I'm doing the best that I can, but the confines of the project pushed me here or both? It was a bit of both. It was I, I going from uh, production five days to production meeting six days of me, which never was the plan. And I have a thing that I've learned I can't do any more than three six day weeks. It's like I just I shut down. I don't care. I'm exhausted. I'm I'm just watching cuts go by. So that had been extended to the um, reshoots and revisiting things and not wanting to lose the old project, which had reared up again and wanting to really start off a season tickety boot. So it was just unfortunate overlaps. And um, sure, maybe it was a bit of my pride of, you know, it was a lot of my pride of I'm going, I'm the, I, it's my baby. Both of them are my baby. And and then I just had to say no to both. And that, you know what, everybody has to wait. Everybody has to wait. The, the project that's come back up is like, you know what, we're just going to have to wait a couple weekends when I, when my life on this show that's my current baby is calm again. And I wasn't confident in me to be able to say no from the get-go. Is that everything has to wait? And 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 um just the yeah, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, I can like yeah. You know, and that just uh wore me out. And it was a huge, unfortunate lesson for me to learn. But there's you have to take pride in being the first one to say no before you embarrass yourself. And, you know, fortunately, I'm working from home. I'm not driving exhausted or, you know, yeah, I just put myself in danger. Yeah, well, as a as a people pleaser, if there's anybody that understands the danger of the word yes, it's you because yesing everybody to death puts you in a very precarious position. And I think one detail to clarify here that I think is really important because so many people have taken on more than one project and overlapped to clarify with these two things going on at once. It was technically two projects, but it was kind of for the same people. Right. So it wasn't a matter of you had no. it was almost like you had one job, but two separate projects in a way. Correct or not? No, it was two separate two separate productions. Oh, it was. Because I remember yeah. at some point reading about how you were actually balancing oh. two, but it was kind of the same supervising producer or something. That's that's how I ended up getting um, an interview for American Dreamer was I had, was at that time I was doing two, three, and then it became, can you volunteer your time? Oh, so this because, was another because, time that you were overlapping another, multiple yeah. projects at once. <laughs> I'm confusing yeah. all of them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, interesting. Um, all right, so that well, I definitely want to get uh, get into that in a little bit. But having gone through this experience probably more than once, 
what would you say are the boundaries that to you are non-negotiable? What are the things that if you're going to take on a new project, you know that you're going to be a people pleaser to a certain extent, and I'm going to do the best I possibly can for you because that's what I do. But having become more seasoned at this and seeing the detriment of that, do you have certain non-negotiables where if you are going to go on to another project, what are the things that they're going to say to you? You're like, no, unfortunately, this is not going to be a good fit for me anymore. Well, one I learned a long time ago is I won't drive more than half an hour. That's just crazy. I know it's crazy. I I know if you lived in LA, yeah, I, I wouldn't be driving anywhere. But now that I work from home, I love this. Um... It's this this six day week thing. I'm not, and I I limit myself when I do, when I work with a director or producer. The maximum I do is ten hours, and and they, I find if directors or producers are from out of town and they're in a hotel room, they want to work longer because they have nothing else to do. And I'm like, no, I ten hours. I I'm sorry, I'm I'm mush. I anything I do after ten hours, I'm going to redo the next day. That's how I feel. If I'm making music choices at the end of the night, oh, I'm replacing everything. And and like I said, the three six day weeks, I I'm and that's pushing it. I'm good, maybe two, but um, you know, with what we do, and I think this doesn't just apply to editors. I think anybody that does a job inside, you have to get out and experience the world to be able to storytell to be able to crunch numbers or whatever you do as an office job i think you're a better mindset if you've been outside you have to get outside we're not made to be in these environments i have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much i love my topo mat and i have finally discovered what i now consider the topo mat of desk chairs the core 360 The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for many hours a day, and that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour, but if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. No, we have not evolved for the last 100,000 years to sit in front of glowing screens and dark rooms <laughs> with recycled air and no windows. Uh, it's just the, the level of absurdity of the work that we do and the level of creativity and problem solving that is required, knowing what it takes to maximize creativity from a physiological level 
knowing that motion is required, activity is required, being able to step away and take breaks and have room in your brain to think freely and activate what's called the default network. So you connect all these random ideas together into other ideas, which is the sheer definition of creativity. So to maximize that, I know, let's put somebody in a dark room for 16 hours a day and put the pizza under the door when they're hungry. <laughs> and we wonder why we're in the middle of the problem that we're in the middle. And I've just, I've never understood the logic, which again, it's all about logic for me because I'm just one of those annoying questioners, but it never made sense to me, which is why I started all this. Like you want me to be good at my job, but you're setting me up for failure. You're doing exactly. everything you possibly can to make me fail. And it takes everything that I have just to not fail. It doesn't take everything I have to succeed and be my best just to not fail. Takes yeah. everything inside of me because those are the conditions that we've been put in. Yeah. And it's not just us. I mean, if you think about people that are frontline workers working in hospitals, things like that, those, you know, they're in the same inside heavy pressure, always having to be alert jobs. Like we have no idea. I have no idea what they do, but I have no idea how they do it. Well, the difference is, and somebody needs to send this memo to all the executives and the uh, studio people. They're literally saving lives. Last time I checked, we make entertainment for a living, which, to be clear, is important. And anybody that was locked inside for the last two years know how important entertainment was to our well-being and our mental state. But we're not saving lives and we're not curing cancer. But I often feel like that's the level of importance that's put on all of the urgent things that need to be done. Like I've I don't know how, if anybody else has ever said it this way, but I've essentially coined the phrase that ASAP is a verb. You can be ASAPed all day long. Oh, I just got ASAPed. They ASAPed me, right? It was never a verb, but it's a verb because people are doing it constantly. It's like we're not saving lives. So if you really think about it, are the six days even really necessary? They're not. But that's really the core foundation and fundamental reason why we're in this place is that the studios arbitrarily say it's on the calendar, so we must make it so. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Right? Yeah. So here's, here's my, uh, my hypothesis. The reason they do it comes down to the same conversation we've already been having. Because people continually say, yes. And they make it happen. And today's miracle, well, that just becomes tomorrow's expectation. Yes. Right? Yeah. So it's just it, the, the word yes has been very, very dangerous for all of us collectively. And that's why I want to talk about how on a personal level it can cause the issues that it does, but how we learn to set better boundaries. And I'm not coming to you because you're an expert at setting boundaries and I'm not either, but you're somebody that's seasoned enough to have seen the, uh, the consequences of potentially not setting enough boundaries. So now you have your set of non-negotiables. If I said to you, I just saw American Dreamer, you are our our next editor. There is no question, but here's the thing. We're going to need you for at least 12 hours a day. It's going to be a long string of six-day weeks, and it's going to be a little bit of a drive. But we're <laughs> going to pay you whatever you want to make it happen. Is this even a conversation? No, no, no. And 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 I, I have fortunately known I have turned down jobs that have been a little kooky just because it's no. Why would I why would I do that? Why would I, you know, and we've all, uh, you know, it's unfortunate. We all get the notices of editors that have uh, passed away because they're not moving and they're not getting out and they're, they're stuck at their desks and whether it's, you know, whatever disease it is, it's not healthy for us. 
And I think, you know, that letter you wrote to the motion picture about enough is enough, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, That was one of the first articles that I read that you wrote. And I was just like, yeah, this dude is sticking up for us. And we have to say no. And we have to stop being afraid of if we say no, somebody else might get the job. We'll let them get the job. Mm-hmm. You know? Let yeah, you, you, you dissect just about anybody's career path to success. And that path is paved with an endless series of no's. What I really wish they had was an alternate page to IMDb. Because IMDb, I know for a fact all of the projects that you said yes to. Maybe not all of them, but the ones that are legit credits. I know your yes resume. I want to go to IMDb and see a whole listing of credits of all the films you said no you to. Said no to. Yeah. Right? Because that's a much more fascinating journey. When people see, well, what have you said? You said no to that and that and that. That's, that's a much bigger part of the journey. But we just assume we shouldn't be doing that and we should be taking anything that comes along. Yeah. And uh, to be perfectly honest, I've made... I've made three really bad choices in my career where instead of saying no at the beginning, I quit. And that wasn't cool, but I I ended up saying, you know what, I'm not driving an hour and a half and then driving an hour and a half home and then being told I have to work till two in the morning and why am I not back in the chair at 9 a.m.? And then I was mad. And I was tired and I blew up and I quit. And that wasn't the right way to handle it. If I just said no from the get-go, if I just listened to close friends that were like, why are you doing that? You don't need that gig because I was insecure. I got to keep working. I have to be Lisa, the editor. And that's, Mm. it's really hard to break that chain. So really it wasn't just the outside voices pressuring you saying, oh, you're perfect. You can do this. It was the inside voice that says, and this is so important. It goes back to where we started, but I'm Lisa, the editor. Who am I if I'm not working? Exactly. So did you know before that job started that the commute was going to be 90 minutes each way? Oh, yeah. Okay. So it wasn't something where you had been told one thing, you agreed to it and it changed. You knew what you got yourself into. Yeah. And that's why I now say I don't drive that car because Mm -hmm. if I'm going to stare at a screen like we do, I'm not, I'm, I'm dumb. And if I drive home at night and, you know, in Canada, it feels a little darker at four o'clock. It's like dark. I don't want to do that drive for my own safety. But that was why I checked that box now. So making mistakes, just just making some mistakes left, right, and center. <laughs> and I would guess that at some point, even though maybe in the short term, you put them in a bit of a position where they're like, well, just lost our editor. Now we got to scramble and figure it out. But I bet in the long term, it was probably more valuable to them that you decided to replace yourself so they could find somebody that either was closer or could put in the hours that they required, whatever it might have been. But ultimately, you leaving probably was more valuable to them in the big picture. It, you know what? It was. It also. Well, you know what? I am going to say it. I'm going to say the day I quit, a whole department quit. So I I was there was other issues of why I quit. The distance was one of them and how I was being treated was I just was like, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not uh, going to be part of a process where they brag that they kept people 72 hours or 48 hours on set doing like the painter's work. I'm not going to be a part of that. And 
and it did. It did allow somebody that was closer to take the job, which was great. And yeah, I left them in the lurch, but I had to do, I had to do what I felt was the best for me. Yeah. And I think that that's the important part. And that's where so many people get stuck is they fall into that loop that you have talked about a lot, which is this people pleasing loop. I have to keep everybody together and keep the peace at all costs and make sure everybody's okay. But then you reach that line of, yeah, but it's not, this is no longer healthy and it's actually unsafe for me to do this. So at some point, I'm just going to have to cut the cord and realize that it's probably going to be better for everybody. But it's still a very, very scary feeling when you realize I made the wrong choice. Yes. And it's it's yeah, it's a hard thing and it's a humbling thing. But what I appreciate about it is that you learned from it. Because I feel there are some people that make mistakes like that and they don't have the perspective or the awareness to look back and be like, oh, maybe I just shouldn't take jobs where I drive 90 minutes each way. And they just keep repeating the same pattern. So, yes, you made a mistake. We all make mistakes. But you had the awareness to say, now I've learned something that I'm not going to do again. Yeah. Which to me isn't yeah. a failure. It's just feedback. And you're just going to move forwards having that feedback. Yeah. And uh, the... You know, and just coming to terms with with what I do, I I need to get out. I need to exercise and do things like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So while we're on this topic of exploitation, long hours, kind of giving everything that we have to our own detriment, there's something else that I want to dig into a little bit deeper, which is this idea of potentially, and this is what I want to to get your perspective on, potentially being exploited by either doing free work or doing very, very low paid work. Because you had a full career as a camera assistant on the way to camera loader, 31 years, everything kind of falls apart, totally out of your control, it's just circumstances, it is what it is. But now all of a sudden you're going back to making like 400 bucks a week and some would say, well, pff, once you're that age, like you're just being exploited if you're paying that much and you should never, ever, ever take free work because it devalues everybody. I'm curious what your thoughts are about both of those. You know, I, if people ask me, how can I get in? And I always say, if they, there's nothing wrong with interning. It's, a, it's, uh, I mean, that's how I got into the camera department was volunteering and doing stuff and and uh mugging gear and figuring out if I wanted to it the benefit for me of of being a volunteer slash intern was I got to test the waters without having to go to school I got to test the waters um and really get the sense of what it's like and I was making the call. I was like, I will, it was my choice to go and pick up the dailies. It was my choice to um, stay late. And if I didn't want to do it, I could have bailed. Um, would I do something for free now? I would have to do it as a passion project kind of thing for a friend, which isn't a bad thing. But I do think it's a great way to get your foot in the door. It's funny that you say that about working for free, because my understanding is, didn't some free work get you to where you are now on a Tribeca film? Yeah, exactly. So talk a little bit more about that, because given somebody that says yes to everybody, let's talk a little bit more about that uh, that free film that you decided to to do and how that maybe wasn't so much what somebody might think is, oh, it's exploitation and they're taking advantage of you. How How is this valuable to all parties involved? I um. 
okay, that's, I was working on two projects, the same producer, the same post supervisor. And they came to me saying, uh, the post supervisor came to me and said, I, I've been approached to do uh, a film that's for make a film foundation. And it's written by a young boy that's dying of cancer. Uh, and my dad died of cancer. And I have a lot of friends that died of cancer. So it's a bit of a thing. It's a touch point. And they said, would you cut it? And I said, y- you, you're like, when? Like now or like when I'm done this? And they were like, well, it's starting now, but it's just a short, it's like 11 minutes. And, and I said, yeah, I will, I will do it. But you know how busy I am. Like something's going to be tabled so I can do that. And they were like, yeah, okay, well, we'll put your name in. And oh, and there's three directors. And I said, oh, okay, I, yeah, sure, I'll do it. And I didn't know who the directors were. I never heard of Make a Film Foundation, but I thought it was a really great idea for kids that are sick. That, you know, what an awesome thing. And then they said, oh, you have to interview with Sam Raimi, Catherine Hartwick, and Ted Melfi. And I was like, what? And I was like, this is for the Make a Film Foundation. And they said, yeah. And I interviewed with them. And they hired me. I was like, great. I was, I'm still amazed that they hired me. Like, anyway, I'm grateful. So we did this film and Ted Melfi was finishing Hidden Figures. So he directed and did a little, I think he did, sent me some notes. We chatted briefly. Uh, I worked with Catherine Hardwick for like a day or two because it's, it's a short film. It's like 11 minutes. So they, you know, and then Sam Raimi finished it and he was awesome to work with. And it's a zombie film. And the things we did in that zombie film for Anthony Conti, who unfortunately passed away before it was completely finished, but I edited the film. But what was really great was this kid was sick in a hotel room. So I FaceTime with him and I show him my dogs in Vancouver. And, oh God, here I go again. It was just, that's the stuff that I love to do. Is if we have a skill to give it back. And sometimes it doesn't matter what you get paid. Sometimes you want to take them for everything because they're working your heart or it's ridiculous or whatever. And sometimes you want to give back. And that was, I am very fortunate that somebody saw in me that I could be involved to give back. So anyway, I do the short film. I have that brief moment chatting with Ted Melfi. And then cut to literally five or six years later, the same post-supervisor came to me and said, I have a film. Can you, uh, do you want to read the script? And I'll see if you want to put your name forward. And I read the script. and I was like, oh my God, I love this. This is great. And um, ironically, the when they sent me the PDF of the script, it didn't have the cover page on it. So I didn't know who wrote it. I just loved it. And I, it turned out that Ted wrote it, or Ted co-wrote it. So uh, the director called me. I had never met the director before, so we had a phone call. And uh, 
then I got a call back and uh, I just said, I love this film. It's just, it just really uh, hits me. I, it just is so much of it I relate to. And uh, the director said, well, Ted, the one thing you and Ted have worked on is this film back then. And I was like, oh my God, Ted, because I still didn't know he was attached to it. I just had the the director's name and Ted Melby. So that was wonderful because the director said, well, Ted is either, Ted's suggesting you for this film and are you available? And so if I hadn't had done that film before with a, sorry, not speaking well, um, the Make a Film Foundation, I might not have had that connection. So doing that one freebie even though it, it is very near and dear to my heart for emotional reasons, obviously. Um, it's uh, connections are important. And that people see your passion is important, I feel. Maybe not so much, too much passion. Yeah, I'm, I'm very, very glad that you shared all that. The reason being is that I have... Number one, I have many, many soapboxes. The joke that I've uh, said over and over is that I have added an addition to my house to hold all of my soapboxes. And one of my soapboxes is people screaming from the rooftops in the Facebook group saying, don't take free work because it devalues all of us. And I'm going on the record saying to people, take free work and take free work all the time with the following caveat. These people need to value you and respect you and there needs to be something you're getting in return. It doesn't have to be money. It can be connections. It can be learning new skills. It could be access to equipment, access to experts, access to mentors. There are going to be so many reasons that you're getting the value in return for the skills that you're providing that don't have to be money that, in my opinion, enrich your life so far beyond what that paycheck would be. Now, however, if you're a major studio financed by a mega global corporation, you're going to pay me every dollar that I'm worth and then some because it's a different playing field. To this day, I still do free work. I still do free projects and I now have a very close friend and mentor and that relationship started because they said, hey, I know that you're really good at editing. I had this project and I'm horrible. Can you help me? It's just this thing for like elementary school kids, right? Footage wasn't very good. They really had no idea what they were doing. It's something I whipped up in a couple of days and it helped me build a friendship. But I never thought to myself, they can't afford my rate and I'm not going to let them exploit me. Right. Because it's all about intention. And the intention was we want to tell a story. We want to have a positive impact on the world. We have no budget, but we want to bring you on board. And wouldn't you say that based on whatever amount of time you put into it, it sounds like you've been paid back about a hundredfold in return. Oh, yeah. I mean, I work with Sam Raimi on Christmas Eve, which is usually a holiday or Boxing Day or whatever it was. And I don't regret that at all. You know, to the point where I, He's just a great guy and gave me great tips. And I, it's just to meet people like that is, uh, it's a gift. And then to have that memory of Anthony and seeing him beam when he was like, nobody's sending me cuts. And I just, you know, don't tell anybody, but I would FaceTime him the cuts and he'd be like, oh my God, that's awesome. And to be able to like, that just is like, it sounds corny, but it really warms my heart. Yeah, that to me is invaluable. There, there is no way to, to quantify an experience or a memory or a moment like that. 
which is why I really think people need to go out of the way to be more open-minded about the opportunities that are available that don't always have to be about whatever your day rate is. Yeah, you don't have to take every short film. You don't have to, but if if there's a lot of really great short film scripts out there, it's hard to write a short film. And if one touches you and you want to be involved, you can set your limits to it. I love Look it. at me telling yeah. people to set their limits. I know. Isn't that funny how that works? Uh, well, one of the things that I've learned through developing a coaching practice that rings so true is that you often coach what you need to hear and learn the most. And everything that I talk about, it's like I might as well just put a mirror up right there. <laughs> Listen to it myself because uh, it's all I say all the things that I need to hear more than anybody else. And I'm glad that you brought up the fact that you're like, yep, set your limits, knowing that that's something that uh, you're currently working on and in the, the progress of improving just like everybody else. Yes. Um, so given everything that you've learned and accomplished and now can feel proud of the fact that you've gotten where you are being settled and established as an editor. I have an exercise that I want you to go through very, very quickly with me. And you may know what it is if you listen to my podcast. It's not something that I do with every guest, but I think it's very apropos in this circumstance, which is that I want you to jump in a time machine and I want you to go back in time and I want you to sit on the couch with yourself while you're watching Absolutely Fabulous and drinking beer. What's the conversation you're going to have? To put down the beer and to get outside and to to believe in me and that somehow I have it in me to, to do what, you know what? Cause I wouldn't have known. I think it's not, you might not know what you want to do, but you have to believe in yourself that you will succeed. And you just have to really erase the doubt. Even though I have doubt a thousand times a day is just to stop and shake your head and, and, Look ahead. Don't look behind. Just keep looking forward. I could not say it any better myself. I would say those are very, very wise words for anybody to live by, editor, camera operator, or human being. So on that note, as you may already know, because as I've learned today, you already follow and listen to the podcast. So I might be repeating this to you. But for anybody that listens that doesn't know this, I spend a lot of time working with creative professionals, learning how to build relationships with others, connect with them, how to potentially learn more, maybe have a mentor, whatever it might be. So are you the type of person that's open to connecting with others? And if so, how can they get a hold of you? How can they find you or your work or connect with you directly? Uh, they can, uh, my email is on my IMDB page and or lisarobisoneditor.com. Well, that's simple enough. That's you have no idea how, how many people I've had to <laughs> workshop and spend days finding somebody's email address. And in this case, it's like, here uh, it is. I'm, I'm there. I'm there. Yeah. So, and I think people get it in their heads like, well, I can't bother Lisa. She's too busy and she's not going to respond. And why would she want to help me? Something tells me you're the kind of person that somebody reaches out with genuine outreach, provides you a little bit of value. You're the kind of person that's going to respond and help them. Yes, I do. I have in the past. And I usually try to do it within 48 hours. Or well, that's commendable because it usually takes me a month or two. You know, well, Zach, you have way more things to juggle than I do. But I, <laughs> I, I also, if it gets too far down, I will forget about it. So I try to, even if it's, I see your email, 
I can't get back to you, but I will. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. I, I, and then I follow up. Right. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough for being here, being so honest and so candid about sharing your story and allowing others to experience what you've experienced and take some of the, the lessons from it. So um, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Zach. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show. If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well. One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you subscribe to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even going to send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.